Good morning, Grace City. Merry Christmas. It's my privilege to be with you this morning sharing the Word of God. In the summer of 1988, I joined 11 college students in the inner city of Chicago on InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's Summer Chicago Urban Project. I had just finished my first year of graduate school, and part of the reason I joined was I had no idea why in the world God had called me to graduate school. One of the things that we studied was a lot of urban issues, including race relations, and so I thought, well, I wonder if God is calling me to love the poor. So maybe I need to go live in an area with many more poor people so I can figure that out. Little did I know that if you ask God, do I have to love the poor, his answer is always going to be yes. Pretty much when you ask God, do I have to love anyone, his answer is going to be yes. And so that was a very transformative summer for me. And one of the stories in that summer I would like to tell you right now. So we worked with families and children, and on the project, there was a young woman named Melissa, a white woman who had that super, super fair skin that literally, if you're in the sun for five minutes, you turn lobster red. And she accompanied her host family and the kids to the swimming pool in our neighborhood. The swimming pool had a big uh, kids and grown-ups pool, with a chain link fence and then a kiddie pool that was a foot or two deep. And Melissa sat on the kiddie pool side with the mom and some of the younger kids, while the older kids went to swim in the bigger pool. Now this summer was one of the hottest summers in Chicago's history. It had over 30 some days with temperatures over 95 degrees and 100% humidity. So this pool was jam packed. There were a gazillion teenage kids in that pool, all of whom were African-American. The kids in the family came and said, Melissa, come, join us in this pool. It's so hot. Why do you want to hang out with those kids anyway? And so Melissa, standing here with the kids from the family, standing here with this chain link fence between them, looked at that pool and said, I'm sorry, I just can't. As a white woman, she just felt like she could not cross over into that bigger pool and into that space. When she came home, she talked about that story, wondering did she do something wrong, feeling really bad that she just viscerally could not cross that fence to go into that pool. Her story became a metaphor for us as we worked in the city. As we saw around us, Chicago being one of the most segregated cities in the nation, that there were invisible chain link fences separating people and people groups everywhere in the city. These invisible fences where you could see each other, if you stuck your fingers through, you might even be able to touch each other, but you were just separated from one another. I'd like us to take a moment right now to ask us, or to ask God to give us the name of a person or a people group that we feel separated from with this chain link fence. It may be an invisible chain link fence in our case. 
a person or a group where it feels like you could reach them, you can see them, but somehow there's still a separation. Would you please type that name into your phone? If you want to be brave, you can text it to your small group. And I'm just going to pray right now that God would bring to mind that person. So let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have created all of us to be one people, that you love each and every one of us. And yet we say before you that our world is separated by chain link fences. And so even in this moment, God, would you give each person listening in to the sermon the name or the picture of who it is that they should Amen. I'd like you to keep that person or people group in your mind as we talk today. Well, Corey and Bob asked me to speak today on a subject close to my heart and close to the heart of this church, on reconciliation. I love this topic so much that I even wrote a doctoral dissertation on interracial friendships. So let's start with scripture in John 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Well, you're going to see a slide right now of Judea and Galilee, and I just want to make a point. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. If you look at the map, Judea is to the south, Galilee's up north, and Samaria is in between. As you may know, Jews and Samaritans had historically challenging relationships. Jews saw Samaritans as half-breeds, Israelites who had intermarried with foreign peoples. They saw them as theologically suspect and wrong. Samaritans worshipped on the wrong mountain and had lost the true faith. They were also historically political enemies since 600 years earlier. Samaritans had opposed the rebuilding of the nation of Judah. And so Jews just did not like Samaritans. To travel to Galilee between Judea, which is where Jerusalem was and the temple, Jews literally would avoid Samaria by walking through the wilderness. They would travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, then north to Galilee, avoiding Samaritans because they despised them so much. In that trip was the wilderness, which went from 2,500 feet above sea level to 500 to 600 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. Nothing grew in the wilderness. It was very, very hot there, except for at the Jordan. And the Jews regarded the desert as a gloomy place, full of terror, where devils and unclean beasts live. So it's pretty striking that they would rather brave devils and beasts than Samaritans. Going on in scripture, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift of God that God has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now when Jesus went to the Samaritan well at noon, he knew who he was likely to meet. Samaritans, women, because only women draw water, and someone who was an outcast, because women drew water in the early morning when it was still cool. So he knew he was going to meet someone who didn't want to be in the company of other women. Some people think that the Samaritan woman was a prostitute and that she's exploring with Jesus whether he's a customer. Jesus does a radical thing. He's vulnerable about a genuine need and asks for her help. He empowers her. He's thirsty. She has a jug. He asks for water. He doesn't command or demand. As one who had the power, a Jew, male, frankly God, he put her in power. He risked defilement to himself to even drink from her jug. The woman's response to Jesus shows her shock and surprise. Jesus engages the woman in a discussion about living water. He does some mind reading and tells her what's going on in her love life. And for the first time in the gospel, he reveals himself to be the Messiah. Isn't this crazy? The first person in the book of John that Jesus reveals his identity to is a Samaritan outcast woman. Going on, just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? It seems to me the disciples made two mistakes. They didn't see, and they didn't ask. First, they didn't see. Jesus sent them into town. But they didn't see the town as a place they should care about. Now, as disciples and followers of Jesus, who've been charged with healing and teaching and casting out de demons and declaring the kingdom of God, the relevance of Jesus and his incredibly good news didn't even enter their minds as they walked the streets of the Samaritan town. It didn't enter their minds as they interacted with shopkeepers or past people walking. The very good gospel didn't apply to this people group that they despised. Instead, they concentrated on their agenda, getting food. Their second problem was they didn't ask. 
when they come back and see Jesus interacting with this woman, they don't ask the questions that are in their hearts and minds. They're shocked, maybe horrified, but they don't ask. And with 2020 hindsight, John provides the two questions they could have asked. What do you want, and why are you talking with her? Now maybe because she's really uncomfortable with the disciples' hostile stares, we read, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in the village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Now the disciples and Jesus spend the next two days in the Samaritan town. I wish there was an account of what happened during that, those two days, but I love to imagine. Imagine how being the one who introduces her whole town to Jesus transforms the Samaritan woman's life. What social healing did Jesus give her? Imagine how Jesus interacted with the man that she's living with now, or the five husbands from before. What relational healing did Jesus bring into her life? Imagine how the disciples felt about staying in Samaria for two whole days when their agenda was to get back up to Galilee. How did their attitudes change from the well to the point of leaving? Did they change? What healing might Jesus have created for their bigotry? And imagine how the disciples' relationships with the Samaritans changed during those two days. What did it look like to eat with them? to socialize with them, to spend all this time with them in a town that wasn't their own, in uncomfortable ground. What interpersonal and inter-ethnic healing did Jesus create? One of the things that I love the most about Jesus is that he came to be a reconciler. He had to go to Samaria because he had to reconcile with an outcast woman with a whole people group. He had to help the woman reconcile with her community. And he had to help his disciples reconcile with the people that they avoided, mistrusted, and even despised. Just like in Jesus' day, our world is full of these invisible fences where we can see each other touch each other, even be in close proximity to each other, where we might even walk in each other's neighborhood, but never bother to see one another as people that Jesus actually loves and calls us to be with. 
We, like the Jews, too often travel out of our way to avoid certain people and people groups. For example, today the political divide feels stronger than at any other point in my lifetime. Where do you or your family sit on this political divide? How do you see the other side? Like the Jews and Samaritans, do you see your political opponent as theologically suspect, as someone who might not really understand God's will? Do you see them as your enemy even sometimes, or just not good people? Jesus invites us to follow him to Samaria, to whatever our Samaria happens to be. And so I have a couple suggestions for how we might follow Jesus into Samaria. First, reject outrage, judgment, and panic. Everything in our culture and media seems to push us towards outrage today, towards feeling bigger and bigger and bigger emotions. I want to give us a tool for thinking about a practical way of navigating our differences. It's called the Approaching Differences Diagram. It's a tool that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a ministry I've worked with for 30 years exactly, has been using for decades as we engage in cross-cultural ministry. It's coming up on the slide, and it should have come to you in the email announcing this service as well. And so, Take a minute to pull it up or to look closely at it. Hopefully you can see the letters. And I want to walk through this Approaching Differences uh, diagram with you. If you notice at the top, there's a green line. And there's the approach. And on the bottom, there's a red line. And you can come into any relationship, either green lining or red lining. When you come in greenlining, you approach a relationship with openness, acceptance, trust, and adaptability. Or you can come in redlining with suspicion, fear, superiority, or prejudice. When we hit cultural differences, which don't have to just be ethnic, they can be where you're from, it can be gender, it can be your politics, it can be even just what type of food you like to eat. We hit differences and what happens is that splat you see in the middle, dissonance. Whether you come in green, whether you come in red, you will experience dissonance when you hit differences. And what happens when we hit that splat? We feel frustration, misunderstanding, confusion, tension, embarrassment, sometimes even aggression. In that splat, we have a choice. We can green line or we can red line. We green line through observing, inquiring, listening, initiating. And when we green line, the result is understanding empathy, and deepening relationships. Or we can come out of that splat, redlining, 
where we criticize, rationalize, or isolate ourselves. And the result of redlining is alienation, withdrawal, and broken relationships. No matter which way you come in, there's going to be conflict. But if you come in greenlining, there's a much better chance in the conflict and the splat that you will be able to go out greenlining. While if you come in redlining and then you hit the differences, the chances are that you're gonna keep on redlining, which is why we call it an approaching differences diagram. How we come into relationship can often help determine how we'll engage in them and the result of what happens in that relationship. So let's walk through some practical examples just looking at this diagram. Throughout the Gospels, and even in the story we looked at, we see how Jesus greenlines, even with those who want to kill him. So when Jesus had to go to Samaria, he went greenlining with openness, acceptance, trust, and adaptability. Now the Samaritan woman comes at him redlining with some dissonance. She raises the historic issues between Samaritans and Jews. She wants to debate a little bit about the worship and how who's right or wrong. But Jesus just keeps on observing, inquiring, listening, and empowering her. And through greenlining, he brings her into the kingdom of God. The disciples, on the other hand, we see go into Samaria redlining. They come with suspicion, fear, superiority, and prejudice. And when they feel the dissonance of Jesus talking with this woman, they isolate. They don't ask the questions. Instead, they're just silent. And so we don't know what happens in those two days. But my prayer and my hope, and someday we'll find out, is that in the time watching Jesus green line with the Samaritan people, I really hope that they came to a better place and began greenlining as well. Let me give you another example. When my husband and I got married, we both joined each other's families. And my husband, Scott, and I are about as different as you can get. We're different ethnically. He's white, I'm Chinese American. We're different, different geographically. He's from Maine, I'm from Hawaii. We're different politically. I tend to be more liberal politically. He tends to be conservative politically. We're different uh, on every single personality test you could possibly take. So our marriage has been somewhat challenging at times. But when we look at our families, the differences are even more magnified. Like I'm a product of my family. He's a product of his family. When we came into each other's families, Scott came into my family green line. He came in open, accepting, learning, embracing, and my family fell in love with this guy. He is almost their favorite person. I often think that they like him way better than they like me. He's probably easier to get along with than me. I, on the other hand, when I joined his family, came in redlining. I felt suspicious. I felt worried that they would judge me. I felt fear that they would reject me. And that really affected our relationships. When I came in so cautious, it made it harder for the whole family to relax. 
And it's taken a lot of work through this splat to get myself into a place of coming out into green mining with this family. And I've worked really hard at it with a lot of prayer and a lot of conversation and a lot of effort. Through the political season we've been in, I can often find myself redlining. So even though Scott and I have the same values and actually have voted relatively the same despite our political differences, I can often find whenever we get into any political discussion that I'll go into redlining. Rather than trusting and, and being open with him, even though I know we have the same values, I'll view him as the enemy. I'll put him in the other camp. I'll create a dissonance, even more dissonance than is already there. These days, it feels like every part of our country is redlining. Cancel culture is especially toxic in this time where if someone makes a mistake or if we disagree with them, we cancel them. They're out. We've redlined by completely isolating. And I keep on thinking if this continues, if this culture of canceling one another continues, we will get more and more and more splintered until we're just alone by ourselves, which C.S. Lewis actually defines as the definition of hell, being completely alone and by yourself. Friends, the world needs the good news of the gospel. The world needs people who will follow Jesus in green lining across their differences. Now differences are inevitable and the splat is inevitable, but we can decide how we will approach the differences and how we will respond to the differences. Jesus invites us to green line with him. God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to help us green line on both sides of the equation. So I'd like us to take a little moment again to be practical. Remember the name of the person or the people group that God gave you at the beginning of this sermon? I want you to sit with that person in mind, looking at this diagram, and think about what happened in relationship with this person or this people group. How was your approach? How was their approach? Did you green line? Did you red line? Where were they? What happened in the splat? And then what happened after the splat? How did you come out of the splat? Redlining or greenlining? And finally, where is the relationship now? I'd like to give us some tips on how to practically practice approaching differences and greenlining. First, all of us at times feel like the Samaritan woman, judged, outcast, vulnerable. I want to say to you that Jesus meets you at your well, at your place of need and shame, and he engages you in conversation. He wants to empower you. He thinks you're a key player in his master plan to bless the entire world, or at least your own community. And so if you feel like you're the Samaritan woman, I just invite you to ask Jesus, where is he empowering you now? What invitation is Jesus giving you? What would it look, to look like to say yes to Jesus? 
Some of you may be a Samaritan villager. Someone who maybe you don't even trust has come to you and told you about this man, Jesus, and how he knew that person's life and how what good news he was. What might it look like for you to go and meet Jesus yourself? How might you invite Jesus to stay a while? Would you ask him directly if he's got good news for you? And tell him that you want to see for yourself if he's true. And lastly, if you're a disciple, someone who's following Jesus, where is your Samaria and how is Jesus taking Hopefully you figured that out through the little prayer time we had around the approaching differences diagram. But I want to encourage you that if God has given you where your Samaria is, to hang around a while, to take a risk and go there. Spend two days in your Samaria. And then green line. And some practical ways that we can green line. As an individual, we can read a book about a different people group. We can watch movies or documentaries. We can ask Jesus the questions that the disciples should have asked. What do you want? And what are you talking with that group about? And how can I get in on that conversation? In our church, here are some ways that we can green line. You can join a small group, and the women's ministry has been working around some race conversations. Uh, the men's group is also working around some conversations around race. So that could be a great place to deal with some of these issues. You can join a Be the Bridge class. Uh, you can join a Growing Grace class. In January, we'll be having a class on evangelism, and we'll also be having a class that I'll be teaching on safe spaces and free speech speech. Friends, Jesus is such good news, whether you're a Samaritan woman, a villager, or a boneheaded disciple. Jesus green lines with us so that we can green line with others, reconciling to one another so that all may know and experience Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you had to go to Samaria. Thank you that you had to come into our world. Thank you that you green-lined with us every step of the way. That you came not judging, not criticizing, not condemning, but with openness, love, asking us questions always seeking to build a reconciled relationship with us. May we be people who follow in your steps, green-lining with those you call us to. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.